This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas. They discuss the senator's new book, Only the Strong, reversing the left's plot to sabotage American power, as well as President Biden's decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, the foreign policy lessons from President Reagan, and the argument for the continued U.S. support for Ukraine. Senator Tom Cotton, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It's good to be at the Reagan Institute. Well, we love having you here in studio in person. And of course, you've been on the Reaganism podcast before. It's a thrill to have you back. We have you here today because of your new book, Only the Strong. Congratulations on another book, uh, Reversing the Left's Plot to Sabotage American Power. You, of course, are a Republican senator from Arkansas, expertise in national security, foreign affairs, amongst other issues, served in Iraq and Afghanistan. So when you talk about American power and about the military, you come at this not just from on high in the uh, greatest debating society the world has ever known, the U.S. Senate, but also from the ground. Why did you choose to write this book now? Well, I wanted to lay out for the American people um, how we got to where we are. I think most Americans have a sense uh, of decline, that our military is not as strong as it once was, um, that economically we're falling behind both working class families, but as a nation, especially if you compare us to China's growing economic strength, um, and that we simply don't win wars anymore. I heard this especially last summer after the debacle in Afghanistan, which was kind of the immediate cause for which uh, I started on this book. Uh, And I wanted to lay out for the American people how we got here, because it's not an accident. It's not bad luck. It's not the ineluctable forces of some kind of abstract historical pattern. It's a result of bad choices that have been made largely through Democratic presidents and Democratic congresses. And it's also intentional. Um, Going back to Woodrow Wilson, the progressive left has been at best ambivalent about America. I don't want to say they're un-American, or I don't want to say they're necessarily un-American, plenty of them are, but they have real doubts about America and American power and its role in the world. They, they believe that it's much more likely to lead to war and arrogance and oppression than it is to lead to freedom, prosperity, and security. Great concern about American power, right? And And it's referred to in this book as decline by design that they want, starting with Wilson and the American president since, and certainly you you talk about Carter and Clinton, Obama as the ideologue here, the Uber ideologue, and then Biden, uh, as you move through your book towards the end as the understudy. Why, why would an American president seek decline by design? What is the alternative they seek? And then we can kind of perhaps pull the thread in how Afghanistan is the manifest the most recent manifestation of this? Well, it it does go back to the patron saint of the modern progressive movement, Woodrow Wilson, like Barack Obama, a professor before he became president. Um, those two men are probably the most ideological presidents we've we've ever had, and, and Wilson in particular, explicitly and openly repudiated the Declaration and the Constitution. Um, he said it was outdated, that it hadn't been informed by a proper understanding of history, that it answered to Newton with its checks and balances and separation of powers and not to Darwin, which he and 
those uh, who uh, came in his age in the late 19th, early 20th century understood really controlled these vast impersonal historical forces. Wilson was very much informed by German romantic philosophy, and you can see that in the way that they wanted to graft on this new administrative state into our old constitu constitution. Um, and second, you see it in the way he approached the world. Um, so Wilson, after campaigning on keeping us out of World War One, immediately entered World War One. Is that right? And only the strong. There are good reasons to get into World War One from the very beginning. Uh, Germany killed over a hundred Americans when it sank the Lusitania in 1915. Germany conspired with Mexico's government to try to reclaim territory that Mexico had lost to the United States 70 years earlier. Earlier in the Mexican-American War. Um, Germany was restarting unrestricted submarine warfare that had immediately seized up uh, supply chains and the economy on the East Coast. All of these things are, would have been viewed by our founding fathers or by someone like Ronald Reagan uh, as casus belli, as grounds to go to war with Germany. But when you read Wilson's speech uh, declaring war to Congress, almost all of that is absent. He speaks very much in the abstract about the political and economic and social well-being of other nations. He famously declared that we were going to make the world safe for democracy. Uh, I would say that Ronald Reagan and our founders would have said Woodrow Wilson was missing one word. One word. The goal of American foreign policy should be to make the world safe for America's democracy. And it was threatened then as it threatened in some ways now. That's one stream uh, of what you see in the modern progressive thinking. It's just kind of like abstract ideological desire to use American power for anything other than America's vital national security interests. The second and kind of a natural outcome of repudiating the Constitution and our declaration is what Gene Kirkpatrick, Ronald Reagan's great United Nations ambassador said was to blame America first Democrats. And you really get this in the 60s and 70s during the Vietnam era. People who think that America is so rotten that it can't be redeemed by going on these grand ideological pursuits, um, but that it would actually corrupt the world even further if we ventured into it. So that's why you see these kind of uh, pol the, what seem like polar opposites. They really get back to the same premise, which is the progressive repudiation of America. Sometimes that meant of American power and America's founding. Sometimes that manifests itself in these grand ideological schemes, but sometimes it manifests itself in an almost anti-American isolationist. And in, and in fact, you point out how, you know, from, as you mentioned, Kirkpatrick, going to that Blame America um, uh, chapter in the book is, you know, the Vietnam syndrome. And it, it reinforced the, the democratic liberal viewpoint that we cannot trust the military, we cannot trust the mil American military power. And then it repeats itself in your judgment over the course of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the so-called uh, war on terrorism. And then we get to 2020, you know, that summer of, 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 of 2021, um, when we have the Biden failure in Afghanistan. And how kind of connect that to the framework you've just articulated? Sure. The Biden chapter is actually harder to write than the Obama chapter because what Obama was up to, as I write and all this strong, is very clearly ideologically driven uh, of his tendency to blame America first and, and see America as the fault for our problems in the world, like with Iran. Like he clearly blames 
Iran or America for the tensions that we've had with the Islamic Republic the of Iran back and forth years. Got the Iran deal and we can Whereas with that I, Biden uh, kind of flips and flops and has gone through these cycles of change. You know, as, as Bob Gates famously said, he's been wrong about nearly every major right. national security <laughs> foreign policy question in the last 40 years. You can make it 50 years now. I think that's in part because he's largely reflected what he thinks the Democratic presidential primary electorate thinks. So he was elected in 1972. He spent his first 20 years uh, very much as kind of a typical blame America first Democrat. We now know because of reporting uh, during the Afghanistan debacle, he was very callous and indifferent uh, to what was happening in, in South Vietnam in 1975. He didn't appreciate the um, effects that would have around the world and kind of supercharging communist insurgencies and revolution uh, for the next five or six years until Ronald Reagan became president. That culminated in 1991 when he voted against the first Gulf War. Uh, people don't like to talk much about that now, but it was very close. Uh, only, I think, 52 senators voted for it, and Biden, like most Democrats, voted against it. Then he spent about uh, 10 to 15 years as kind of this this liberal, hawkish internationalist senator. Like He liked to brag that he was the first senator to demand boots on the ground to stop a civil war in the Balkans, and he wanted to bomb Syria. And then he voted, of course, for the second uh, Iraq war, which, again— People forget was very popular when those votes were cast. Seventy-seven senators voted for it, not just Barack or not just Joe Biden, but Hillary Clinton and Harry Reid and John Kerry and many other Democrats. And a few years after that, he flipped back to an even more kind of dovish isolationist position. I guess you could call him also something of an ostrich who just likes to stick his head in the sand. Yeah, that, about that, that's going to be your characterization. Well, yeah, he's, a, he's, he's this dove or the hawk or the right. ostrich. Um, I, I think the Afghanistan debacle also gets back to the sense of insecurity he's always felt, especially insecurity towards Barack Obama and Barack Obama's he, team. Given what happened when he was vice president. So, yeah, in, 2000, yeah, in 2009, uh, it's well documented, first in Bob Gates's books, but now in Barack Obama's memoir as well, that, that Biden was the insistent voice in 2009 of cutting out immediately in Afghanistan. And just to contextualize, this was the moment in uh, President Obama's presidency early on where Afghanistan was a good war yeah, so, and that he felt that we needed to reduce uh, re resources in Iraq emphasize Afghanistan, build up there, and, and even approved a surge for a period of time. Yeah. I don't oppose that. Yeah, and to go to go back to how I explain it, and only the strong to get to, to the root of this, is that Democrats understand that their weakness on foreign policy is a political liability. That's why you get things like Michael Dukakis riding around in a tank where he looks like Dark Helmet from Spaceballs. Um, <laughs> Which you have but, the picture yeah, in the book. Yeah, but no, they, so they— um, they often do and say things in campaigns or even once they get into office um, that end up with dead Americans and, and America's interest undermine. And, and Obama's rhetoric about Afghanistan is a good example of that. In some ways, he would have never become president without the Iraq war because what really launched him against Hillary Clinton in 2007 and 8 was his opposition to the war, uh, just like uh, whereas Hillary Clinton had supported it. Yeah. Um, however, I, I think he and his political advisors were worried that he would be viewed as this kind of George McGovernat anti-war peacenik if he was only known for opposition to the Iraq war. Therefore, he, he campaigned in a very kind of chesty, aggressive, almost bellicose way about the war in Afghanistan, how George Bush had taken his eye off the ball. Almost immediately upon taking office, really after being elected to office, he, he began to revert back to that kind of uh, instinctive blame America first Democrat and have misgivings and second thoughts. But he was boxed in between his political rhetoric and the campaign and, and demands from senators in both parties uh, to follow up on that rhetoric. 
and, and what he really wanted to do. So you had this long debate in 2009. That was, that's what you're describing Obama right now. Obama. Right. But, and then uh, Biden. Biden was consistently in his ear uh, in a very corrosive way, um, Bob Gates writes, telling him that the military is lying to you. They're going to box you in. They think they can take advantage of you. I, I know I've seen this over and over again. Uh, Gates likened it to, to Biden subjecting Obama to Chinese water torture. In the end, uh, Barack Obama chose a kind of watered down version of what Bob Gates and Hillary Clinton and Leon Panetta and Stan McChrystal, the commanding general in Afghanistan at the time, had recommended, but he definitely repudiated what Biden wanted. And I think Biden had a chip on his shoulder for 12 years that he was right, that everyone else was wrong to include Barack Obama. Once he got elected in 2020, he wanted to show everyone that he was right. And that's why in, in April of 2021, he said, we're going to get out. We're going to get out now. Bizarrely, he said, we're going to get out by September 11th, as if it was somehow right. a way to celebrate yeah. and remember those who were killed in an al-Qaeda terrorist attack to withdraw entirely from Afghanistan by that date, which you know is still in the middle of the fighting season there. And, and then he just very stubbornly dug in his heels, even though conditions on the ground were deteriorating so rapidly. And although it may not be front of mind still for most Americans, although I still do, do think it colors their view of Biden as a oh, yeah. leader, if you look at opinion polling, that's when Biden went upside down in his approval ratings. It very much uh, has had a what a Chinese propaganda outlet referred to as the Afghan effect. I don't think it's a coincidence, for instance, that Vladimir Putin began to marshal forces on Ukraine's border just a few weeks after. You draw the line between the fiasco that was Afghanistan and the American withdrawal and Putin and aggression is no war in Ukraine. No question. I mean, there's more than just the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I mean, President Biden engaged in a series of concessions to Putin throughout 2021 that probably enticed Vladimir Putin as well. But in the same way that the collapse in Saigon created this Vietnam syndrome, and you can draw a straight line from Saigon in 1975 to Angola and Nicaragua and Iran and Afghanistan, I think you can draw a pretty straight line from Afghanistan in August 2020-21 to Ukraine in February 2022. And it, uh, unfortunately, it's going to be with us, this Afghan effect, for at least as long as Joe Biden's president. We're with Senator Tom Cotton, author of Only the Strong, new book from the center on reversing the left's plot to sabotage American power. Uh, a great read. I found a quick read also. It was a uh, uh, kind of page-turner effect for me, at least. Um, president Reagan features heavily throughout this book and and almost as a contrast in terms of um, how the presidents uh, here cont contrast with President Biden relate to American power. And one episode that that features in this book uh, perhaps surprised you that you would uh, reference it uh, was Grenada. And explain to us why that is relevant as you kind of create this contrast between President Biden and the tradition of uh, Democratic uh American presidents and conservatives like uh, President Reagan. Yeah, um, I didn't think it was possible, but uh, I came away with this book and the research for it with even more respect for Ronald Reagan than I previously had, having really dug in carefully to some of the the details or the details of the decisions he made, like the invasion of Grenada in 1983. You know, that's often portrayed as the United States once again picking on a small right. Caribbean or Latin right. American country. 
Um, or maybe Ronald Reagan wanting to uh, distract attention away from the horrific bombing at the Marine barracks in Beirut just a few days earlier. Um, that's not the case. This was an absolutely necessary war for our vital national security interests. And that's how Reagan perceived it and those around him perceived it. The planning for this had been underway for some time. Just to set the scene, there was already a communist regime in Grenada. Right. Um, they were overthrown uh, in the fall of 1983 by even more bloodthirsty communists who are even more closely allied uh, with Castro's Cuba and with Soviet Russia. But if you look at the geography, which Reagan lays out in his autobiography, um, Grenada was the missing link in a string of air bases uh, from southern uh, the southern Soviet Union, what is now Ukraine and Crimea, into Libya, into Western Africa, and then on to Cuba. If Grenada could be established a, as a friendly Soviet air base, Soviet bombers and Soviet cargo aircraft could have flown from the Soviet Union to Cuba, 90 miles away from our shores, largely undetected by the American military. It could also have been used as a way station for Soviet submarines and to run weapons uh, and other material into South America and Latin America to support communist insurgencies. And as Reagan wrote, they were building a suspiciously long runway, which is much longer than you need for passenger right, aircraft right. or people going on beach vacations during uh, the winter season from Europe or America, but surprisingly exactly what you needed for heavy Soviet aircraft. Um, and then when you add into the mix that uh, hundreds of American medical students were at risk as well, um, Reagan made the quick and decisive uh, choice to go for the jugular and, there. And of course a word, was rollback. Absolutely. Was, and it was the first successful rollback of a communist regime during the Cold War. Which, of course, was not something that not only Democratic presidents, but Republican presidents yeah. for, for you know, at that, that point, decades uh, sought to do in the context of the Cold War. That seems to be an element in your yeah. mind uh, as we deal with Russia or China that you're prescribing and only the strong. And it, yeah, and it and again, it, it, it wasn't just about those American military medical students, although that alone was enough. It was also this geostrategic uh, threat that we faced as well from Soviet Russia and from communist Cuba. Um, it was, again, perceived at the time as something that was just a distraction from Beirut, but it was utterly necessary for our vital national security interests. And it showed that it was possible to do this as well, to finally draw a line and saying, we're not going to let the communists backed by the Soviets take this step that threatens us even more so. And, and I I compare Reagan to the founders, and in many ways, the founders had what you might call a minimalist or reserved foreign policy. Right. Um, that's in part because of the times they were in, you know, a young nation that was still standing up, that was not economically independent, that faced a lot of superpowers uh, from uh, Western Europe. Um, however, if you look at the purposes of their foreign policy and the purposes of Reagan's foreign policy and the changed times, as you have to, because you always, foreign policy is foremost the domain of prudential reasoning and practical judgment and taking into consideration 101 different things, you'll see that even though Reagan's foreign policy seemed very assertive uh, and very bold all around the world as compared to, say, George Washington or John Quincy Adams, they were actually acting from the same principled basis, just given changed circumstances. And that's how we should reason today about foreign policy as well. One other element, and at the end of the book, you have uh, a number of examples, almost a program of what we need to uh, reverse in what you describe as decline, uh, this decline by design. One of those elements near and dear here at the Reagan Institute and our Center for Peace to Strength is a focus on the strength of our military. And you highlight 
that not only is there skepticism with this ideological approach towards decline by design with the use of American power, there's also uh, 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 almost uh, a preference for not investing in American power. And that, of course, I'm referring to our military, although it's not limited to military. We have our intelligence community as well, uh, border security. Uh, but ultimately, in terms of building a strong military, and, and that is one of the key steps you emphasize and, of course, uh, one of the elements that you've witnessed in this decline by design. Take a minute to explain that. Well, yeah, there is no substitute for military strength. It's not the only form of a nation's power, um, and it's, you know, the, the military is not the most important um, or the highest thing any political society can do, but it's the most fundamental. It's the first. Uh, without military strength and without protection of safety and security, you can't achieve prosperity and enjoy the, the blessings of liberty um, that we have for 200 plus years. Um, our military power is also one of the reasons why we have such a strong network of friends and partners around the world. Look at Southeast Asia, for instance. Almost all of those countries have massively greater trade flows with communist China than they do with the United States. Um, yet we still have a lot of influence in those countries. Why? It's because they all want to be military partners with the United right. States because countries like Vietnam or the Philippines or Taiwan worry about Chinese dominance in their region. They understand they're going to have a different relationship with communist China than we will because they live right next to the dragon's lair but they still want to have that relationship with America because of our military might and our ability to project power and to deter China's threat around the world. It was the same way with Soviet Russia during the Cold War. It's the same way in some regards still uh, in Russia's periphery in Europe. Um, unfortunately, Democrats, uh, going back even to supposedly strong or tough or hawkish Democrats like FDR and Truman and JFK, cut the defense budget when they come to office, just like birds migrate south for the winter. It's just an invariable <laughs> fact it. It built in the DNA. Of, of American politics. Um, and they often, end, when they are spending money, they're often trying to spend it on, on things that are not really related to the military's core mission, which is preparing for and winning our wars. You know, as I say in only this make that explicit. The Democrat, yeah, the Democrats uh, are sometimes called the mommy party because of their focus on, you know, the more kind of caring or nurturing or softer issues in politics. Um, there's fewer icons in American culture that are farther related from the icon of mommy than the drill sergeant. <laughs> And not, while not mommy, mothering figure, huh? while mommies are essential uh, right. to human societies, drill sergeants are pretty essential as well. Um, and the first thing that our military needs to do on every single day is be training and preparing to fight and win our nation's wars, hopefully so we never have to fight them in the first place. And that's what Ronald Reagan taught us in the 1980s, that a strong defense budget spent on the right things with uh, confident and assertive foreign policies around the world does not lead to war. It leads to peace and to victory. I want to get to a couple of the flashpoints in, in foreign policy and national security today, and then also talk about our National Defense Survey, which actually hits on, on that last point uh, you just made. Let's start with Ukraine. And, and here in the, in the book, you were dealing with stuff of this year, 2022. So that you're, you're writing this book as stuff is happening. And, and you lay out that we are dealing with Russian aggression in Ukraine in part, perhaps in large part, to policy decisions by President Biden. We talked about Afghanistan already, but you mentioned coming to office and signing New START, right? Um, <clears throat> Nord Stream 2, right? Giving the 
the deal to the Russians, uh, trying to, uh, signing off on it. Uh, and then, of course, his language, that is President Biden's language at the outset when we saw this military buildup on the Ukrainian border that somehow allowing space for, quote unquote, a minor incursion. So you, you have all these things um, that you're both contextualizing in a broader ideological outlook that comes from President Biden uh, and what it actually means uh, on, on geopolitically today and, and the impact it's had. Talk a little bit about how that is putting us uh, in, in a weakened position and yeah. where we are right now with Ukraine. Yeah. Um, you know, Churchill, when asked what he would call World War II, promptly responded to the unnecessary war. And I'd borrow from Churchill and say that the Ukraine war was the unnecessary war. Um, my Democratic colleagues in the Senate um, always get uh, a little prickly when I point out that Vladimir Putin tends to invade Ukraine when Democrats are president, but he doesn't when <laughs> Republicans are president. Yeah, 2014 with Crimea. Okay. Um, yep. But that's in part because he thinks he can get away with it. You know, Barack Obama refused to provide uh, Ukraine with Javelin anti-tank missiles. I, I was there with John McCain in 2015 when they were pleading, not even for, one of them said, "Not we don't need hundreds of Javelins, we just need one Javelin. And one Javelin will send the message we need to every Russian tank commander. Because you take out... Take out one, one and that tank. changes the calculus entirely. But Barack Obama said, as you hear from Joe Biden and others, like, oh, we can't risk World War III. Well, along came Donald Trump, a Republican president. He began to supply Ukraine with Javelins and a lot of other weapons and plenty of training. Did we have World War III? Did we, we didn't even have an invasion of Ukraine. But then when Joe Biden took office and you laid out some of the concessions he made, like a no-strings attached extension of the New START Treaty, the only major arms control treaty we have now with Russia, um, conceding that Nord Stream, the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline would be completed and operational to Germany, you know, turning the other cheek largely on the colonial pipeline cyber hack, giving Vladimir Putin a big glitzy summit last summer. These were all signals that Joe Biden didn't have what it took to stand up to Vladimir Putin's aggression. And you saw it after the fall of Afghanistan, they began building up troops and, and Joe Biden acted like a cat or uh, he was as nervous as a cat in a room full of rocking chairs about this. He, he kept, and I contrast this in Only the Strong with Reagan's attitude about certain things. So like, for instance, uh, I think it was last November, last December, when President Biden said, we're not going to put any American troops in Ukraine. I happen to agree with that statement. I'd right. much rather send American weapons so Ukrainians can defend themselves. I think Ronald Reagan would, agree, would have agreed with that statement as well. He never considered putting American troops into Afghanistan, for instance, after the Soviet Union invaded it. However, he wouldn't have told Soviet leaders that. He, he wouldn't have broadcast where our limitations are. He would have, he would have continued to complicate their war planning. Um, and then, like you said, you know, uh, Joe Biden started musing publicly about maybe a minor incursion, just you know, slicing off a small a bit of uh, Ukraine wouldn't have been resulted. It's a little bit of the down. And again, fine, right? Uh, I don't. Reagan would have never said those kind of things publicly. All these things suggested to Vladimir Putin in the run up to the invasion. Um, that the United States and the West response would have been meager and largely um, indifferent. And you even saw this in the immediate, you know, 24 to 72 hours after the invasion in February. If you look at what the Europe, European Union was proposing in terms of sanctions and all the carve-outs these countries were demanding, like Italy wanted to carve-out for luxury goods to Russia and right. Belgium wanted to carve-out for diamonds. I mean, these were very frivolous responses. Uh, and it was because they all thought, like I think Joe Biden thought, that this war was going to be over quickly, that Ukraine had no chance to survive. Why cut off our nose to spot our face? Let's just wait until Russia rolls through Kiev in another couple of days. And it was really the bravery and the skill of the Ukrainian army and uh, Volodymyr Zelensky's decision to stand and fight that kind of shamed most of the West into actually supporting Ukraine. But, uh, one other feature, which I think goes into the 
reinforces the thesis in your book and you, and, and you reference it is this notion of we self deter mm-hmm. that the Americans, American strength, you know, if utilized other than the form of our munitions being sold to Ukrainians or bolstering the NATO allies will result in escalation that, that strength doesn't allow us to prevail, but somehow strength could lead us into a wider conflict. That's, that seems yeah. to be a key fissure here. Well, I can't, I can't tell you how many, yeah. how many times I heard starting about this time last year, late, late 2021, up until as recently as just a few weeks ago, briefings in the Armed Services Committee or in the Intelligence Committee about why we wouldn't take a certain step or deliver a certain kind of weapon because we feared it would lead to a certain kind of Russian escalation. And invariably, what has happened is two or three months later, we do provide those weapons and it does not lead to Russian escalation or Russia goes ahead and takes those escalatory steps in the meantime, and then we provide the weapons and nothing else happens. So, for instance, from the very beginning, we should have been providing Ukraine with the kind of long range rockets and artillery that they needed to defend their eastern territory. Instead of being able to defend that territory and hopefully bring this conflict to uh, an end sooner, now they're having to use the very weapons we once refused to get the, give them to retake, try to yeah. retake it, yeah. which is much harder. And you just see this time and time again. Just you know, in the past week, the Wall Street Journal has reported that we have uh, you know uh, imposed technical limitations on some of the weapons that we provide to them, so they can't lo- lo- launch longer range strikes. Um, we're still not providing them with certain kinds of drones as well. It's uh, again, it, it's the exact opposite of what Ronald Reagan did. Ronald Reagan did not worry about providing weapons to Afghans in the 1980s. It was going to lead to World War III. He was worried that standing by and, and wringing our hands and wrinkling our brow was going to lead to Soviet domination of the world. And again, the, the confident and assertive uh, exertion of American power around the world, time and time again, you see, does not lead to war. It leads to victory and peace. In the remaining time we have, I want to jump to the Reagan National Defense Server in a second. But let's focus on something that doesn't come in the book, but no doubt I know you care deeply about and actually manage in your time in the U.S. Senate, which is another ideological stream, not on the Democratic side, but actually on the conservative Republican side. And this is the so-called neo-isolationists, members of Congress uh, and the House of Representatives or the Senate, who are also somewhat skeptical of American power and certainly the use of American power that would result uh, in forces overseas and 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 the so-called long or enduring wars that featured uh, in the Trump administration. I'll give you one data point and then you can respond uh, in terms of how you view uh, this and the tradition of, of, of Republican presidents that you highlight in your book. But we did in the defense survey question on would you continue supporting Ukraine uh, in the form of uh, military assistance or putting forces nearby, not on the ground? 51% of Republicans said yes, but 41% said no, clearly reflecting uh, the voices that you hear from Senator colleagues like you, uh, like you have uh, Senator Rand Paul, for example, who would, who would be associated with that. Talk to us about that stream and, and its relevance here and, and particularly in, in the arguments in your book. So only the strong is, you're right, is primarily about what the left has done to America's American power and America's national security over the last century, especially over the last 40 years or so. Um, I, I would say, outside of what I still think is a groundbreaking work of the history of American foreign policy and thinking about 
debates within the Republican Party, and that's Walter Russell Mead's Special Providence, yeah. which kind of breaks down the stream of thought that goes back to our founding. You still see it present today into four different schools, and those four schools are still present today. You have the right. Hamiltonian sense. You might say that was President Bush, the elder of someone who wanted to use American power to help gain, help uh, improve American commercial interest around the world. Um, you have the Wilsonian strand, maybe say John McCain, who, who believed in this kind of proselytizing mission to help bring democracy around you know, the world, yep. defend human rights and so forth. You have the Jacksonians, which are really the engine of American foreign policy, as Walter writes. Um, that would be probably our, our, our kind of base voter around the country who is hesitant, uh, understandably so, to commit American troops into combat. But once they do, they want to follow what U.S. Grant said about war. Find the enemy, get them as fast as you can, hit them as hard as you can, and then move on. Uh, and then there's the, the Jefferson. As winning. Yes, as, as winning militarily. <laughs> right, right. And then the Jeffersonian strand, and this might be Senator Paul, who is somewhat skeptical about the vast national security apparatus we have and about foreign entanglements. Right. Um, although Jefferson himself, as I write, not only the strong, had some pretty assertive views of, say, the Barbary sure. pirates yeah. in the Mediterranean. So I think that's probably a better way to think about Republican foreign policy thinking. Um, on the Ukraine matter in particular, um, yeah, does, I, that, does that number surprise you? That is forty-one. So I think a lot of that is tied up um, with the cost of the aid that we're providing them, yeah. especially when you face an inflationary environment here at home, um, and, and it is less uh, based on the risk that that war creates for us from a strategic standpoint. I would say the risks of not supporting Ukraine, of letting Putin in the end achieve his objectives in the long run, is much greater. And it's been a good investment. I mean, yeah. Best we can tell, we had the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, at the Reagan Defense Forum recently, and one of the things she emphasized have the Ukrainians have decimated the military. Yeah, they have. And, and we've learned a lot about Russia's military. We're in, learning an increasing amount about Iran's military since Iran is now supplying Russia. Right. Um, what I, I would say, and this is I hear this a lot uh, this fall on the campaign trail, is that Europe needs to carry more of the load here. Um, if you look at America's uh, support for Ukraine so far. Um, it's about 55 military aid to 45 uh, non-military aid. There are some things that only America can do for Ukraine's military, some weapon systems that only we can provide. Our defense industry is world-class. Europe has a good defense industry, but not like ours. Um, so I, I would like to see that ratio much higher on military aid to non-military aid, 70, 30, 80, 20, something like that. Meanwhile, Europe needs to provide more cash for Ukraine. Right. Um, that comes in two main categories. One is to support the Ukrainian government. Second is to, for humanitarian assistance. Um, Europe may not have the same kind of weapon systems that America has, but it has plenty of euros. And, and in particular, the EU and Brussels and Paris and Berlin need to step up. Their uh, support for Ukraine and the burden sharing in this war has frankly been pathetic. Uh, not just compared to the United yeah. States, but compared to Great Britain and Poland and some of the Baltic states. Paris uh, and Berlin and Brussels really need to do a lot more to carry the economic load of non-military aid. The free rider problem, no doubt, is is an issue. President Trump emphasized it. Frankly, secretaries of defense have been emphasizing yeah. it, both administrations sometimes. And, in the, you know, sometimes before the war in Ukraine, sometimes I would make this point, if you look at public opinion polls about going to to war on behalf uh, of a NATO country. In, Article 5. Um, yeah. yep. And it, it, it is it is shockingly low in some European countries, uh, especially Germany. And in the end, you can't expect um, American uh, parents to care more about German kids future than German parents do. Uh, and some of our European, Na European NATO allies simply have to 
increase their support for Ukraine. They have had to increase their own defense budget. You know, Germany made a big show earlier this year of saying they're going to get up to their 2% threshold of their uh, economy on defense spending. And now they're starting to moonwalk away from that. One more on Ukraine, bit of a prediction question, and then I want to focus on our survey, something I know you care deeply about and work on in the Congress and throughout your career, trust and confidence in the military. But first, Ukraine, we can expect another um, package coming before the U.S. Congress, before you and the U.S. Senate. Is that something you think will pass and will get Republican support? Um, I do. It depends on how Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi want to bring it to a vote if it happens this month. You're saying you want to read the bill for it? (laughs) Or Kevin McCarthy and Chuck Schumer if it happens after the new year and the new Congress. Um, The the simpler that bill is, um, the less uh, other measures riding on it, probably the more votes it will get. You know, if it's part of some massive um, omnibus spending bill that's larded up with the Democrats' domestic priorities and a bunch of extraneous other bills like giving access to the banking system for marijuana distributors or letting liberal media companies form a cartel uh, to exclude center-right media outlets, I think you'll see many fewer um, Republican votes, which is what we saw this spring in one of the early votes in Ukraine aid. It was part of one of these massive spending bills, and it didn't get as many Republican votes. When it was more a, or less. It's a, a great vote. point because we have to look at the legislation. It, it some might say it's a reflection of Republican views on Ukraine, but it actually could be. Yeah, and so I think measures. when we had more or less a, a clean vote on um, the second aid package to Ukraine in May. I think only nine or 11 Republican senators opposed it. And I think that's probably a pretty good measure of where the support is inside the Senate and probably close to that in the House as well. Last one before we go to the Reaganism lightning round. And this is um, on our survey. We've seen a 22% drop since the time we started this survey in 2018 in terms of American trust and confidence in the military. It was hovering in the 70s. Now it's below 50%, kind of stabilized there over the past two years. I know you care a lot about this issue. You looked at the survey. Give us your take, one, why that's the case, and two, what needs to happen to restore that trust and confidence in our military? Well, you see it in concrete numbers, too, in the recruiting and retention numbers. The Army, I believe, just had its worst year since the abolition of the draft and the all-volunteer Army. The other services only met their targets, if I'm not mistaken, by cannibalizing their delayed entry program recruits who would be entering the services in the next uh, fiscal year. Uh, I think it's almost entirely the politicization of our military by the Biden administration. Um, You know, you see things like the uh, COVID vaccine mandate, uh, a vaccine that plainly is not effective and also not necessary for young, healthy Americans and people being drummed out of the military because of it. Um, or, you know, reading lists that include things like Abraham Kendi or other, um, you know, notorious critical race theorists. Some of the complaints my office has received on anonymous tip line about, um, you know, troopers being trained in white privilege and, um, you know, having to do privilege walks and dividing troops by race uh, and so forth. When I can tell you from experience, you know, I never saw troops that uh, looked at each other and the world through the lens of their skin color, but rather the red, white, and blue they wore on their uniform shoulder. Um, you know, the Biden administration launching a, a so-called counter-extremist working group last year to turn up all the extremists in the military. And after thousands of man hours, right. it got fewer than a hundred. And most of those were just well, in fact, the criminal mil- street gang members. Military is something to teach the country at large and how yeah. you combat and deal with extremists. Yeah, exactly. It's 
a great example of where and it has been for a long time yeah. you know the mil the military was um after major league baseball the second major american institution i would say to be uh desegregated in 1948 and uh, it remains a great opportunity especially for working class americans from every walk of life from every race and ethnicity in every region to be able to succeed based on their own merits. I mean, it is the ultimate meritocracy. Uh, and I worry that if we inject political considerations into it, you'll see a decline in confidence in our military leadership, but you also see the decline in recruiting. Now, I think that can be turned around, but the Biden administration needs to stop some of this uh, politically correct nonsense. And ultimately what we need is a new Republican president and secretary of defense like Ronald Reagan and Cap Weinberger, who take seriously the military's core mission, which is preparing for and fighting our nation's wars. I think I might know somebody who could do that quite well. We're here with Senator Tom Cotton, author of Only the Strong. Before we let you go, we have 60 seconds. Here you have to respond to the lightning round. This is where you share, share with us your favorite book on President Reagan, favorite speech by President Reagan, and or your favorite quote from President Reagan. You've been studying Reagan as I read through this book. What do you have to share? Give us one, two, or all three. <laughs> A lot of great entries in all those categories. I'd say maybe the best quote from Ronald Reagan was, we win, they lose. Uh, his approach to the Cold War, uh, which is often often portrayed as simplistic, but as he said, that sometimes very hard problems have relatively simple answers. Elegance in its own even right. If they're not, even if they're not yeah. easy. Uh, book, again, a lot of great entries. Uh, you know, one of my favorites is Steve Hayward's uh, two-volume autobiography. But again, I, I have to say Reagan in his own hand. I remember reading that uh, when I was in school and more than probably any other book, it kind of upended this notion that Ronald Reagan just fed talking points that right. were given to him. You saw the kind of care and study and thought that had gone into his remarks in the 1970s uh, before he became president. Um, one of the most learned, uh, well-read uh, presidents we've had uh, in the uh, uh, last century. And uh, favorite speech, again, a lot of great entries, uh, but kind of com combining um, you know, Reagan's deep thinking about the American political tradition and about contemporary politics and what to do to, to build back American power from a pretty difficult position as we are now is probably, I'd say, the first inaugural. Tom Cotton, come back anytime. We love having you here. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.